Thanks for joining us here at New Song Church, where we're helping people to know God, find freedom, discover purpose, and make a difference. If you have any questions at all, or just want to learn more about us as a church, you can go to mynsc.org happenings. It's the best way to stay connected with us throughout the week. And now, check out this week's sermon. Well, good morning, New Song. Really good to be with you today. Uh, last Sunday, Deb and I were with family for the holiday, and so we weren't able to be here, so it's uh, so good, great to be here. Uh, I think, therefore, it's appropriate for me to say, Merry Christmas, New Song. And uh, maybe that's too late, and uh, not because a week has passed since Christmas, but maybe because the merry part of it has passed for you as it does so quickly for most of us. It seems like the merry is gone about as quickly as the day is gone. Um, my dad was always a realist. And every December 26th, he would always say, well, back to reality. Like, you know, Christmas was this little bubble of joy and peace on earth and goodwill to men. And it was wonderful, but the bubble burst on December 26th. Got to get back to work. Got to get it back out there into the real world that doesn't really resemble a lot of that peace on earth and goodwill to men. And during this last week, if you've turned the news on at all, you've, you've definitely seen that. Right now, according to most statistics, there are 32 countries in this world that are actively involved in literal war. Some of those countries were able to broker a, a Christmas Day truce, you know, for 24 hours, we're going to put down our arms. For most, they didn't even last for 24 hours, but for all, they've already picked up their guns, they've already fired up their tanks and art artillery, and those weapons of war are in full strength today. And the peace on earth is already gone. One commentator wrote this in, uh, in the light of that, those news things that are going on around the world. He said, uh, peace on earth is and always has been nothing but a pipe dream. Seems rather negative, but he backs that up by stating this. He says, the annals of human history are filled with thousands of attempts on the part of tribes and nations to carve out and eliminate the means by which they wage war. But sadly, the number of agreements to disarm has been virtually equaled by the number of failures to actually do so. Case in point, ancient Chinese history. That history records decades of disarmament negotiations between the Chinese and their Mongolian neighbors. Multiple agreements were reached, but China still felt the need to build a 2,000-mile fortified wall across their border because neither side actually did disarm. Disarmament simply didn't work for them. Neither did it work for those in ancient Mesopotamia, nor in ancient Greece, nor in ancient Rome. And the pattern established by the ancients has been borne out in modern history as well. The International Hague Conference of 1907 was, was held to reduce arms in Europe. Just seven years later, World War I took over all of Europe. They just simply couldn't disarm. At, a, at the London Naval Conference in 1930, European nations agreed to a ratio of naval strength limiting their ships to safe levels. That led to the League of Nations, who sponsored a World Disarmament Conference in Geneva, 1937. That was heralded as a new era of world peace. 
just three years later, World War II ravaged most of Europe and much of the earth. Since that war to end all wars, hundreds of agreements to disarm have been made and hundreds of agreements to disarm have failed. Obviously, we see the need to disarm as nations, as people, but we just can't seem to pull it off. Maybe by now you're going, well, thanks a lot for bursting my bubble of peace on earth, goodwill to man. You know, Christmas was great, and I don't mean to be a, a bubble breaker here today. I don't mean to, you know, pour water on your celebration, but uh, I do need, mean to be a realist in that this is the world in which we live. And I, I want to bring up these things basically to, to answer the question, why can't we pull it off? <laughs> Why in all of the history of the earth we haven't been able to disarm and keep our arms down, keep our weapons down? Why can't we do that? Well, to, to just begin to answer that question this morning, I want us to just kind of uh, listen in on a conversation between a weapons expert and his wife. Um, Hagar the Horrible was a weapons expert. He was always armed to the teeth, and he was so when he approached his, his wife and said, Helga, I'm going to a disarmament conference with Attila the Hun. She asked, why are you taking all those weapons? He said, it's called negotiating. I throw a weapon away, he throws one away. I throw one away, he throws one away. And finally, we have no more weapons left and we can live in peace and harmony forever. She said, that sounds good, but what did I see you put under your hat? He said, just a small dagger. Just a small dagger. I, I just, I, our human natures just can't, can't let us trust the other person long enough to put away all the weapons. I, I need to store at least a dagger or two in case they pull out the weapons that they've stored and attack me. I need to be able to defend myself. And that's one of the reasons why we just simply can't seem to pull it off. Our human natures won't let us. And what is true on a national level, international level, is also true on a domestic level. It's also true on an occupational level, even on a church level. We need to disarm our marriages, and we know that. But how do we do it? We need to disarm our office places, our workplaces. We know that, but how do we do it? We need to disarm even our churches. We know that, but sometimes we just can't do it. We need help. <laughs> and by the way, can I take a moment to, to uh, put in a plug for the marriage encounter that's coming up in about four weeks? Um, in that, that weekend, we're going to expand on everything I'm going to say here this morning. In fact, we're going to narrow it down and apply it directly to our marriages. And we're going to help every couple with some very, very practical, doable things that we can do to have a fight-free marriage. And that's what we all want. And we're going to give you the tools to be able to actually do that. And let me say this, and this is not a boast. It's just a, a fact, and it's, it's, hopefully it's a word of hope. Deb and I have a fight-free marriage we have for 46 years. We do not fight. Does that mean we, do, we don't have conflicts? No. Does that mean we're perfect people? Absolutely not. But we can help you have the tools to have fight-free. So that's, that's a little plug for... for uh, the, the marriage encounter, you can sign up 
at the information desk. Please do that, guest services, and uh, don't miss that. <clears throat> but this morning, I just want to kind of whet your appetite. I want to kind of step out on a little bit broader level and answer the question, why is it that we can't disarm even on a personal level? And what's it going to take for, for us to be able to do that? We need God's help because guess what? God is the one who can pull it off, and he has. God's disarming agents work. They know how to make it happen. In fact, God disarmed the most volatile, explosive situation ever to exist. It tells us in, in uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 3 through 5, it says, the, the, the situation that existed between God and us, God and man, was explosive. We were by nature, because of our sin nature, we were objects of God's wrath. God was justified because of our sin, our rebellion against him, because we would not live with he, him as king over our lives. He, was, he would be justified to take all of his power and bring it to bear in his wrath to punish us. But what did he do? But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich, abounding, overflowing in mercy, there's the first of his disarming agents. God's mercy. Mercy means not giving deserved punishment. God didn't give us the punishment that we deserve, but he made us alive, not dead, but back to life in Christ and life with him because it is by grace and there's a second agent. Grace means giving undeserved favor and goodness and blessing. And because of God's grace and God's mercy, we have been saved from God's wrath. And God disarmed in his grace and in his mercy. And by the way, this is just an extra. You don't have this in your notes. But when the angels came and made that declaration to the shepherds to announce Jesus' birth, what, what were they actually saying? I want to give it to you literally as uh, was in the, the Greek language at least. It says, the angels said, glory to most high God and peace on earth to people on whom his grace rests. That's what it literally says. When God's grace, when God's mercy rest on us, take residence in us, and are implemented in our lives, then we experience God's peace. Then we know the Prince of Peace as we follow Jesus and we implement that principle in our lives. And that's the help that we need. And that's the help that we're, we're going to get today. But the, we ask the question, how do we do that? It'd be great if we had an example of somebody who actually did that. And we do. And that's why I want us to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 24. Back in the Old Testament, if you've got a Bible, please turn to that. About a third of the way through the Old Testament records for us the case of David. David and his very real life explosive situation where he had an enemy who was armed to the teeth, who literally wanted to take his life. And how did David negotiate a peace with that person? And that's what we're going to find out. As you're turning to that passage, we need a little bit of context. We need a little bit of, of uh, uh, perspective on what David was facing. David, by that, at that time, was not yet king. He was actually just a young man, started out as a young boy. Remember the story of Goliath. Because David was committed to his country, he was committed to his king, and he was committed to his God. And, 
And the people of Israel had a nation around them that was constantly, aggressively opposing them and attacking them and trying to tear them down. So David said, I want to do my best, God's best, to help the situation. So David fought and defeated their champion, Goliath. And because of that victory, David was given charge over a thousand soldiers in the army. And David led those soldiers to victory after victory after victory, enabling his country and his king, Saul, to be victorious. And we would think that Saul would be so grateful for the help that David gave. But instead, Saul was jealous. Saul was afraid, this guy is so good, he may take my job. He may, may take my throne. And so Saul said, I've got to get rid of this guy. So Saul literally tried to kill David twice, taking a spear, throwing it at David. And so David said, I, have, I need to run away. And so David, on the run, went to the desert to escape the wrath of Saul. And when he was in the desert, he met up with some guys who were also on the run, running for their lives. And that's what, what the situation was when we get to 1 Samuel chapter 24. In this passage, David comes across an unexpected opportunity. An unexpected opportunity to do the right thing. Let's look at the first four verses of 1 Samuel 24. After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, those enemies, he was told David is in the desert of En Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all of Israel. Saul said, I want the best fighting guys. I want the most experienced, the best equipped, the people who know how to kill other people. And I'm going to take 3,000 of those guys with me to chase David down. And so he, he looked for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. Verse 3, and he came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there. And nature called, and Saul went in to relieve himself. And lo and behold, David and his men, they were already in the same cave. But Saul didn't know it. And all of a sudden, David is presented with a choice. <laughs> the guy who's about to kill me is right next to me. Now what do I do? And David had to choose between what he wanted to do and what God wanted to do. David had to choose between his heart and God's heart. So what was in David's heart? He actually tells us. In fact, he told Saul. A few verses later in, in verse 10, now David's talking to Saul, and he said, This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave, and some urged me to kill you. Now, in the original language, the words some and me are not there. Literally, it reads, we came across you in the cave, and I was urged to kill you. And the word urge literally means to think and desire in your own heart. And we can read it that way, because that's, that's really the, the intent here. David said, when I saw you, I had this urge to take your life. I wanted to kill you. And that was his heart. <laughs> Who could blame him? But what about God's heart? That wasn't God's heart. David described God's heart later on in Psalm 103, verse 8. He says, our God, our Lord, is not like we are. Our God, our Lord, is compassionate, and he is gracious. There's that word. Giving 
good that's not deserved. And he is slow to anger, and he is abounding in love, literally mercy. There, there, are, there are the two angels. That's God's heart. If we could hear God's heartbeat like we can audibly hear our own, I think it would sound something like this. Mercy, grace, grace. That's God's heartbeat. He lives to give mercy and to give grace even when it isn't deserved. Mostly when it isn't deserved. And he wants us to reflect his heart. David chose to be a man after God's own heart. That's how he was described in the book of Acts. He was following God's desires, not his own desires. And when he did that, he discovered three disarming effects of mercy and grace that when we implement those in our lives, it allows them to rest on us and disarm many situations. So what happens when we allow mercy and grace in? When we do, it allows us to disarm our flesh. It allows us to disarm what we want rather than what God wants. And that's what David wanted. But notice what he said in that 10th verse once again. This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands. I was urged to kill you. I wanted to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lift my hands against my master because he is the Lord's anointed. I don't have the right to do that. So how did David overcome that urge? He opted for mercy and grace, which takes away the option of revenge. Mercy and grace does not allow for revenge. And maybe you're saying, like I'm sure David's men were saying, but doesn't the Bible say eye for eye, tooth for tooth? Doesn't it say when somebody slaps me, I should slap them back, eye for eye, tooth for tooth? Yes, the Bible does say that. In the book of Exodus, in the book of Leviticus, in the book of Deuteronomy, that's those very words. But we have to remember that those laws were for civic responsibility. Those laws were, were, were given to help retain and maintain order as a nation and as a society. Those were for judges and officers to implement order in the land. But we are like the people of Jesus' day who want to take those laws and make them personal. You take my eye, I'll take yours. You hit me in the mouth, I'll hit you in the mouth. But Jesus said, let me remind you personally how you're supposed to reflect God's, God's heartbeat. He did that in Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 38. He said, you have heard that it was said, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. But I tell you as an individual, this is how you're supposed to reflect God's heart. Do not resist an, an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. By the way, in the first century, striking somebody on the cheek, on the face, was the ultimate of insults. You know, we've all seen those, those movies where they would take the glove and slap him in the face. That was the ultimate insult. That was the first century middle finger, if you know what I mean. 
And Jesus said, if somebody gives you the ultimate insult, don't insult them back. Let them insult you again. Because it does, mercy and grace doesn't allow for revenge. Being after God's own heart deters us from revenge. And being after God's own heart deters us from, from retaliation. And by the way, those two things are not the same. So what's the difference between revenge and retaliation? Let me put it this way. Retaliation is just a little bit of revenge. Retaliation is just, just enough revenge to make us feel like at least a little bit of justice has been done. And that's really the whole issue, isn't it? It's just we want justice. We want it to be fair. And when we, when we have a little bit of revenge, it just allows us to feel better about the situation. That reminds me of a story relayed by Chuck Swindoll, one of my favorite authors and one of my favorite books. Three steps forward, two steps back. That describes this process, doesn't it? But in relation to this thing of forgiving one another and extending grace to one another, he said, this all reminds me of a story involving some American soldiers during the Korean War. They had rented a house. They had hired a local boys as their housekeeper to do their cooking and cleaning. That was common in, in that war for officers, especially to have that situation. <clears throat> this young Korean guy was hired, and he had an unbelievably positive attitude. They played one practical joke on him after another, but he just always kept smiling. They would nail his shoes to the floor while he was asleep. But he'd get up, and he would take a pair of pliers and pull the nails and slip his shoes on, maintain an excellent spirit. They, they would put grease on the stove handles, but he would just wipe off each handle, smiling and singing his way through the day. They would balance buckets of water over the door, and he would get absolutely drenched, but he would just simply dry off, never fuss, never complain time after time. And eventually they became so ashamed of themselves that they called him in one day and they said, we want you to know that we're never going to trick you again. Your attitude, your attitude has been outstanding. We promise we're not going to do that anymore. He asked, you mean you no more nail shoes to floor? No more, they said. We're, we're not going to do that. You mean you no more sticky on knobs? No more. We, we promise. You mean you no more water buckets over a door? No, no, no. We promise we're not going to do those things anymore. Okay, he said, finally convinced of their sincerity. Then, with a shrug and a smile, he said, Then I no more spit in soup. <laughs> Just a little bit of revenge. Just enough to make you feel like a little bit of justice has been done, even if they don't know it. And that's exactly what we find in 1 Samuel 24, verse 4. David and his men were far back in the cave. Saul was there literally caught with his pants down. And the men said to David, this is the day the Lord spoke to you of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Then David crept up unnoticed and cut off the corner of Saul's robe. And we go, woo. I mean, you cut off the corner of his robe, big, big deal. What does that do? What was that about? You could have run him through with your sword. You could have cut off his head, not his robe. Just a little bit of spit in the soup. 
just a little bit of retaliation to make David feel at least a, a little bit of justice has been done. God doesn't want me to kill him, but, but I can cut off the corner of his robe, even if he doesn't know it. But you know what? It didn't make David feel better. Verse 5, afterwards, David's conscience was stricken for having cut off the corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, God forbid that I should do such a thing. And the men, the guys are going, what is the big deal, David? It's just a little piece of cloth. I mean, you extended mercy. You didn't kill him when that's what he deserved. And you had opportunity. And every, nobody would blame you for doing so because he's tried to kill you. But you extended mercy. So what's the big deal about this robe thing? It wasn't grace. You see, mercy is completed with grace. There are two sides of the same coin. You take one side away, you don't have a viable coin. You've got to do both, and he wasn't extending grace. And we have to complete the mercy with the grace. Look what it says in Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 27. Jesus, again, speaking of this same subject matter, in fact, in the same setting, Jesus said, I tell you who hear me. Who's he talking to? He's talking about people who are following Christ. He's talking about you and me, talking to Christians. I tell you who hear me, love your enemies. Are you kidding me? Sacrifice yourself for your enemies? Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Do the best things for those who would do the worst things to you. Because grace doesn't allow for revenge or retaliation. Grace doesn't take jabs. Grace doesn't spit in the soup. David needed to be completely disarmed. And those around him did too. That's why second step here, grace and mercy disarm our friends. Grace and mercy needs to be become contagious. We need to pass it on to those around us. Look what it says in verse 7. With these words, now David's back in the, he's, he's in the cave. Saul's there. His men are saying, take, his, take him, David. You can do that. With these words, David rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. The word rebuke literally means to hold down with great effort. David was, was, was using all of his strength and persuasive power to keep those guys back from, from running Saul through. So why would he do that? Why wouldn't he let them do what he wouldn't do? I mean, if his own conscience was clear, and it was, you know, and David could have sat back and said, you know, my, my conscience is good. I didn't, I didn't run him through. I practiced mercy. I practiced grace. I, I'm, I'm not going to touch Saul, but, you know, whatever those guys do, that's between them and God. And he could have sat back and smiled innocently and let them do their thing. But he didn't. Grace doesn't allow for loopholes. Grace doesn't allow for revenge by proxy. That's what that would have been. Grace doesn't let us hide behind spiritual hitmen. Let other people strike while we stand back smiling innocently. Grace, God's grace, encourages and enables other people to extend it as well. 
God's grace helps us to help each other love one another and forgive one another just as God forgave us. And what happens when we do? Mercy and grace, and when we allow that into our life, it allows us to disarm our foes, our enemies, our opponents, those who hate us, those who are doing all the wrong things to us. You know, for most people, the story would have ended with the last phrase of verse 7. David rebuked his men, and then Saul left the cave and, and went away. Most of, most of us would have been saying, dodge that bullet. Situation's over. I did my thing. I didn't kill him. I extended the mercy. But not, that wasn't good enough for David. Notice what he did in verse 8. And then David went out of the cave, and he called out to Saul, My Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, he saw David bowing down and prostrating himself to the ground. And I'm sure his, his men, the guys that were with him, going, David, what in the world are you doing? You just, you just escaped a dangerous situation. He's got 3,000 armed men ready to take your head off. And Saul didn't know you were here, but you just gave away your position. What are you doing? And he would have said, I'm practicing grace. Because grace isn't silent. Grace isn't passive tolerance. And sometimes we mistake grace for just biting our tongue. And that is a first step, by the way. It's great that when we, when we bit in our tongue, we did, when we didn't say what we wanted to say, that's the first step, but it's not the last step. Because grace is active. Grace is expressed. It is communicated. That's what the Apostle Paul reminded us of in Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 26. He said, when you're in this situation where somebody does something wrong and attacks you or insults you and your anger flares up, when you are angry, do not sin. It's not wrong to be angry, by the way. That's a God-given emotion. But when the anger takes control and causes you to do what you want to do rather than what God wants you to do, then that becomes sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. How? Look at verse 29. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. And that's not just zipping it shut. That's not just not saying anything. That's not just biting your tongues. You're supposed to say something. And he says what? But speak only what is helpful for building the other person up, that it may benefit and literally give grace to those who listen. Grace proactively seeks reconciliation and communicates. David imparted grace by making the effort to establish communication with a guy who was trying to literally kill him. Saul needed to have his anger issues addressed and resolved. How could that happen? Through grace. We don't have time this morning, but if we would read verses 8 all the way down through verse 15, that it gives the complete story of what David told Saul. And those words were absolutely laced with grace. And what was the result? Look at verse 16. When David finished saying this, Saul asked, 
Is that your voice, my son David? And he wept aloud. David, acting in grace and mercy, broke Saul's anger. Saul wept. Saul was broken. He recognized his own wrong. He recognized the injustice of the whole thing. And he broke down and wept. He was completely disarmed. There's nothing more convincing than grace in action. You know, the best defense isn't a great offense. The best defense is great grace. God's grace. So let me ask you here this morning, is there a relationship in your life that needs to be disarmed? Is there somebody in your life that you need to extend mercy and grace to? I want to lead you in a four-step process to demonstrate it like David did. Number one, confess that need to God. I mean, God already knows what's in your heart. God knows you need to extend mercy and grace to that person in very active and real and verbal ways. He knows you need to. But confess it to God. Say, God, I need you. I need your help. I need your words. I need your power. I need to disarm completely just like David did. Secondly, commit it to God. Commit it to God. Commit the person, the situation, the insult, the hurt. Commit the whole situation to God. David left Saul's wrongs up to God. Verses 12 and verse 15, both of them. What did David say to, to, to Saul? The Lord judged between you and me, but I'm not going to be the judge in this situation. In other words, David was saying, I'm going to hand Saul over to God. I'm going to hand the injustice over to God. I'm going to let God be just in this situation in his way, in his time, not mine. But I'm going to live in mercy and grace. Thirdly, conduct yourself in grace. Start and continue treating that person on the basis of grace. Give them love. Be self-sacrificial in your actions towards them. Give them respect. Give them service. Do something. Give them something that would communicate God's grace. And every one of us in that situation go, but they don't deserve it. Well, if they did, it wouldn't be grace. Conduct yourself in that grace. Fourthly, communicate in grace. Reach out to that person, even if they've already left the cave. You know, we, we, we tend to let distance absolve us of that responsibility. Well, they've already left the neighborhood. They've already left the workplace. They've already left the home. They already live somewhere else. David didn't let distance stop him from communicating in grace. Do you need to call someone today who has already left the, left the cave? Do you need to reestablish that communication? Do you need to let them know that you care and that you want to live God's way? Let's, let's bow our heads together this morning. I want to ask you, is there somebody, and be honest before God, because it's you and God right now. Is there somebody in your life that you need to extend grace and mercy, that you need to disarm towards? Is there somebody in your life that that, that situation needs to be diffused? Would you raise your hand? Is there, is there somebody right now that you know they've hurt you? 
they've wronged you and you'd like nothing more to just to at least fit in the soup and I have my hand raised too let me, let me pray for you let's stand together and I want to pray God's power God's strength God's disarmament over all of our lives and situations today Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your disarming actions. We we, we deserve the, the, the full force of your wrath and your power against us. But thank you that you use the full force of your power to be gracious towards us and to save our lives rather than take them. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior, we thank you for his example of mercy and grace. Help us now, Lord, as we have confessed to you there are people in our lives that we need to extend grace to, we need to reconcile with. So help us right now to take the second step to commit those people to you and that situation to you and our desire for justice to you and let you be a just God and we trust you and we accept your promise that you will. Help us to conduct ourselves now by your power to conduct ourselves in grace and mercy and to reach out to those per- that person today. Okay. Just pick up the phone and say, how can I pray for you? Is there something you need that I can help you with? Is there some way I can, I can be a friend? Father, give us your powerful strength the power of the Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead to raise us out of this situation and help us to live your way. We thank you for that strength and power and we claim it in the name of Jesus. Amen. As a church, it's our honor to play a small part in what God is doing through your life and we would love to continue on that journey with you. To find out what your next steps could be in your relationship with Christ, all you have to do is go to mynsc.org contact. Thank you to all of you who consistently give, serve, and pray. You are the ones who God is using to make a difference in our community as we live out our mission of leading people to become fully devoted followers of Christ. Thank you for watching. We hope you tune in next week.